Greetings in our Lord Jesus Christ, and welcome to the audio ministry of Christ Church of Livingston County. The following are three excerpts from a Covenant Renewal worship service led by Pastor Dirk DeWinkle, teaching elder at Christ Church. We trust you will be edified and ministered to by the Holy Spirit through this audio recording. Our call to confession this morning is from Proverbs 23, verses 17 and 18. Do not let your heart envy sinners, but be zealous for the fear of the Lord all the day. For surely there is a hereafter, and your hope will not be cut off. Do not let your heart envy sinners. Why would Solomon think it necessary to give us such a command? Why would we envy sinners? First, it must be stated here that sinners refers to the wicked, to those who do not bow the knee to God. Though they do not bow the knee, they still have or experience good things in this life. Prosperity, health, beauty, talent, intelligence. To many of them, these things, good things seem to come easy, and their lives appear to be void of trouble or hardship. In addition, they possess these apparent blessings in spite of the fact that they are rebellious against God and even deny his existence. They seem to answer to no one, to no higher authority. In contrast, the life of the godly, of those who call Christ their Lord, is often a life of sacrifice, of saying no to the pleasures of this world and submitting ourselves to the authority of God. It is a way of life that is not always easy, but Jesus even warned us of this reality. In Matthew 7, 13 through 14, he says, Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and there are many who go in by it. Because narrow is the gate, and difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are few who find it. Those who are on the broad path seem to have it easy. And as we observe this, we may be tempted to envy them. And envying them may cause us to chase after the blessings they possess, and even imitate the methods they use to enrich themselves. We may be tempted to cheat or steal, take on bad debt, or work too excessively at the cost of our duties to family and church all for the gaining of status and stuff. We could, for example, also devote too much time to diet and fitness, all for the gaining of greater health and beauty. These are just a couple of examples of the dangers of envying the wicked. God's word, however, provides the alternative. Be zealous for the fear of the Lord all the day. To be zealous for the fear of the Lord is to be active, devoted, and diligent in the fear and reverence of Almighty God. Our zealousness is seen in our taking pleasures in the things of God, in his word, in spiritual disciplines, in acts of love and sacrifice, in worship and fellowship, in fulfilling his calling on our lives. If such things do not give us pleasure, then we should even now be asking ourselves why. Is it possible that we have envied or imitated the way of the wicked? Their way boils down to selfishness living for the pleasures and benefit of self. But doing so leads to discontentment with the providences of God and with the path on which he has placed us. Doing so also leaves us nearsighted and we forget two important truths. First, the way of, of the wicked is not freedom at all. They are slaves to their sinful nature and condemned by it. Second is the fact of what is stated in today's proverb. There is a hereafter 
and our hope will not be cut off. There awaits us a glorious future, one that is exceedingly greater than any wealth or beauty or success we may enjoy today, and one that also surpasses the significance of any of our struggles or sufferings in this life. The Apostle Paul put it this way, for our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Thanks be to God that we have not cleansed our hearts in vain. Being zealous for the fear of the Lord is worth it. In this life the wicked may prosper, but in the end they will be bankrupt. In this life we may suffer, but we have Jesus. And in the end we get more Jesus forever. Amen. This proverb has reminded us of our need to confess our sins. So if you're willing and able, please kneel where you are as we confess our sins to God. So we continue on our study of the Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus having opened his sermon with blessing his disciples in the Beatitudes and having informed them of what their purpose or their goal was, that they were supposed to be salt and light, or a preservative and revelation for the world. He now proceeds with the thesis statement of the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, now this may be a reminder for some of you, uh, but a thesis statement is a declaration of the central idea of an essay or a paper or a speech or, in this case, a sermon. So what Jesus is talking about is the gospel of the kingdom of heaven. That, that's what he's come to preach, is the gospel of the kingdom of heaven. And this sermon is, is explaining to us what, this, what the kingdom of heaven is all about. But Jesus' thesis, the message of the sermon, is that his kingdom is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. Jesus' kingdom, the gospel of the kingdom of heaven, is the messianic kingdom. Matthew 5, verses 17 to 18. Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy but to fulfill. For assuredly I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Now this is a surprising thing. After Jesus has come declaring this gospel of the kingdom of heaven, uh, and he's proclaimed these contradictory blessings, that he says, blessed are you when you are suffering, um, it doesn't seem like this kingdom is the same as the Old Testament promises of the Messianic kingdom. It doesn't seem that way. The Israelites, they were looking for the promises of the Old Testament. They were looking for a new David, a new Solomon, a kingdom of the Jews that was wealthy and powerful. And Jesus says, blessed are the humble and the persecuted. So it seems like Jesus has come to set aside the Law and the Prophets. He's come to do away with the promises of the Messianic Kingdom in the Old Testament. You know, in this sermon, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus 
is addressing a common and an understandable misconception. The people were looking for this messianic kingdom. And it's understandable that they wouldn't understand what they were seeing when they hear Jesus say that blessed are the persecuted. Because when they're looking for something new and then they see Jesus proclaiming something new, he, he proclaims the gospel of the kingdom of heaven with power. This is something new. And the people saw Jesus' message, and they experienced his healing, and they, and they felt the power and the truth of what he was saying, and they were drawn to him. They were drawn to his gospel. But then Jesus makes this declaration, and it's surprising, because this new thing, being so different, is not a replacement of the old. According to Jesus, the scriptures maintain their authority. In fact, Jesus insists on their authority. Instead of ousting the law, he is embracing it. And to be more accurate, he's fulfilling, fulfilling it. Jesus is saying that the old is the new new. He's doing a new thing, but it is not new. It is what was prophesied, and it is what God always intended. The promises, the covenants, the stories of the law, the Psalms and the prophets, the kingdoms of Israel and Judah, they were all pointing to Jesus. But it's new. So if Jesus is fulfilling the law and the prophets in his kingdom, doesn't look like the expectations of his disciples, how does, that, how does that work? How can that be? How did we mess up the law and the prophets so bad? Well, Jesus' intention in the sermon is to reveal the, the true meaning of the law, the true implications, the true import of the law and the prophets. Ultimately, Jesus is teaching that spiritual realities trump physical or outward appearances. Hearts matter more than the external. The, the inside of the cup is more important than the outside of the cup. And that this life, this physical life, is a shadow. It is a preparation for eternity. And Jesus explains this for us in the body of his sermon. And we're going to be getting into how this works in great detail in the coming months. Where Jesus goes at, with commandment after commandment. He says, you have heard that it was said, but I tell you. Jesus says, you've heard this, but this is what's really going on there. But for now, we, we, we come to our text, this thesis statement. Jesus came not to destroy, but to fulfill. Verse 17, do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. And we've already largely covered this in the introduction, and Jesus is not abolishing the scriptures. What is new about his teaching is that it is a new way to see the scriptures, a new way to read them, a new way to understand them. We've got new revelation from God. 
What was a type before is now anti-type in Christ. It's the fulfilled law. What was pictures and shadows of Christ, smoke and mirrors of, of God's covenant plan for his people, is now manifest in the revelation of the Son of God, the true high priest. What men couldn't understand because of the blindness of sin, Jesus makes plain by living it in front of us and explaining it plainly to us, his disciples. He speaks in parables, and his disciples continually are pulling him aside. What did you mean by that? And Jesus explains it to them. In Jesus, in his gospel, we begin to understand what the law was all about, what true righteousness is. And the first thing he teaches us is where we are to figure out what true righteousness is. Verse 18, nothing will pass from the scriptures. For assuredly I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. So Jesus says, don't, don't toss out the scriptures. Get into them. Study them. You know, in, you know, immerse yourself in them because that is where we learn who God is and what he expects of his people. Now, jots and tittles. Um, they are the smallest marks in the Hebrew alphabet. So jots are the Greek word for, for yod, which is a Hebrew letter. And that letter is, is like, our, it sounds like a Y. It's a Y sound. But the, that Hebrew letter in its spelling, it looks exactly like an apostrophe does in English. That's all it is. It's just an apostrophe. It, exactly. Same, same size, same shape, and... and, and that's, a, that's an entire letter in the Hebrew alphabet. Um, and tittles are even smaller. It's like half of an apostrophe, and it's just attached onto the, 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 the tail end of some of the letters in the Hebrew alphabet. Um, and it changes it from one letter to another. And it can change a whole word from one word to an, a different word. But Jesus is telling us that the scriptures that we have, specifically the Old Testament, are enduring in their applicability and in their specifics. He says to, to the, the minutest detail of the law, God, God is fulfilling it. He was faithful when he gave it to us, and therefore we can, we can believe uh, our 1 Timothy 3.16 that all scripture is God-breathed and profitable. All scripture is God-breathed and profitable to us. That the, the, the man of God may be perfect. So in this, we learn the constancy of God. We learn that God is faithful. And he's, he's, he, he reveals his faithfully, faithfulness in his, the stability and the faithfulness of his revelation. When God gives us truth about himself, even though dispensations change, even though the law becomes fulfilled, even though Jesus comes, the Messiah comes, and God lifts him up in heaven, and he does away with the sacrificial system, the law is faithful. God is still an accurate picture of God. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Now, if Jesus had come to cast out the law and the prophets and the traditions of the scriptures, Everything would be called into question. 
there would be no firm foundation. Because God would be giving with one hand and taking with another. But God doesn't do that. Jesus comes and he, he establishes the law and the prophets. So the Old Testament teaches us truth and represents God's expectations for men, even to the minutiae, jots and tittles. Now since the law is authoritative, God gives rewards for law-breaking and for law-keeping. God judges men based on the law. Verse 19. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. This is pretty straightforward. Jesus concludes the thesis statement um, of his sermon with the implications of it. He says, if, if the law is true, then God will reward those who keep it, and he will reward those who break it with judgment. And the, the, the way that we enter this kingdom of heaven that Jesus keeps talking about is righteousness. Uh, verse 20. For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. This is... Uh, You'll, you'll by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. So, in order to get in the kingdom of heaven, you must be holy. You must be righteous. So the first, where, where, where there's blessing and reward, lesser and greater blessing and reward, that was a category of people who were in the kingdom of heaven. He says, you'll be least in the kingdom of heaven, or you'll be great in the kingdom of heaven. But those were people that were at least righteous. Those were the, the righteous ones that were teaching falsely or the ones that were teaching truly. There was greater and lesser reward there. But, but here he says, just in order to get in there at all, you have to be more righteous than the scribes and the Pharisees. Now, we have to understand, you know, in, in contemporary culture, you know, scribes and Pharisees have a bad name. They, they get a bad rap because Jesus is always talking bad about them. But... But, in first century Judaism, the scribes and the Pharisees were the, the epitome of righteousness when it came to outward holiness. If you looked at the culture and you were to pick out the guy that you thought was the most likely to be righteous and holy before God, it would have been a scribe or a Pharisee. Because many of them... Many of them had memorized the entire Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament. They were the specialists and the, the theologians. They were the lawyers of the scriptures. They were, they were the ones who knew the right answers when it came to asking questions of the scriptures. But Jesus tells us that that's not good enough. That's not good enough. You need to be more righteous than that in order to even get in the door. Jesus is going to make this abundantly clear as we get into the body of the sermon. And, and the Apostle Paul makes it abundantly clear in the book of Romans that this is true. Because our God is holy, 
and perfect, absolutely perfect, there is absolutely no way that we can achieve the righteousness that is necessary for us to enter into the kingdom of heaven on our own. It's impossible for any man who ever lived to be that righteous. You cannot enter the kingdom of heaven on your own. We need a savior. We need a surrogate righteousness. We need a high priest who will atone for our sins. We need Jesus to do it for us. There's absolutely no way for us to keep the law. But now that I just got done saying that there's no way that we can keep the law, we get to some application. And the first thing I have to say is, obey the law. There's no way you can do it, but you have to do it. Obey the law. Even though Jesus' main point of the Sermon on the Mount addresses the misconception that he came to abolish the law, people refuse to obey the law because they, they, they still live in that misconception. We think somehow that we don't have to keep the law and we can be, be holy. We think somehow that Jesus did away with the requirements of the law. And so we don't have to do it anymore. And this misconception is still running strong in the contemporary church. Um, and it's, it's because keeping the law is hard to do. And our sinful hearts find ways of trying to get out of it. Now there, there are several theological runarounds that people try and teach, that they say that the scripture, scriptures teach these things in order to, to you know, eliminate these requirements. One way is to separate the Bible into law and grace. To say that, well, we're going to look at each passage of scripture and say, well, this is grace and this is law. And separate it out. And we know that Jesus is grace and grace triumphs, uh, triumphs over law. Jesus, grace trumps. So we can, we, can, we can preach the gospel. Jesus is Lord. But whenever we come to a passage that's law, we can kind of set it aside and not just, just not worry about it too much because that's just Old Testament or that's, that's just law. Um, dispensationalists interpret the scriptures in such a way that only the New Testament commands are valid during the church age because uh, it's a different dispensation. And, and, and so we don't have to, the Old Testament is there just kind of mostly as good moral stories, something that we can you know, appreciate, but it's not authoritative, because it was applicable to the, to the nation of Israel. They also don't hold the laws fulfilled in Christ. They think that it will be reinstituted in the millennium. Jesus says he came to fulfill it. He was, he was fulfilling it. The Gnostic method spiritualizes all the commands of the scripture. And, they, and they, it can do it to the point that they can hardly be recognized in the world, on the ground. You know, whenever you come to a, to a law or a command, well, you know, that's, it's, let's spiritualize that. Let's, let's philosophize it. And then just 
work our way out from what it would actually mean, because that would be a burden. There are less theological ways that people refuse to obey the law, and their results are just as bad, um, and they're justifications that we can use to get out of keeping the law. There, and here I'm talking about uh, the kind of guy who says, he says, I can never do it. It's impossible. Jesus just said, I could never do it. So why try? Why bother? It, it's a defeatist approach. It says, uh, woe is me, I'm a miserable sinner. Um, good, thank goodness Jesus died for my sins. But then stays stuck in the sin. There's no triumph over it. And he goes on wallowing in it and worldliness. There's another approach. This is the Pharisaical approach. Um, and this approach says that, well, I can be good enough. I just have to do, do all the right things. I get, get the right checklist. No, I, I, I have to, I, I'm a pretty good guy. At least I'm better than those people. And, and I just need to know the right methods. I need to, I need to have the right application and, and just check, make the checklist and, and check it off. And then I'm good enough. Well, that approach is a lie because it doesn't honestly deal with Jesus' message in the sermon. It, it minimizes sin. In order for us to, to actually think that we're a good, good guy or that we're, we're good enough, we have to minimize the depth and the, of our depravity. And you have to maximize our own ability to do good. It's not faithful to what the scriptures reveal about who we are and how sin works in us. There's uh, another approach, and this is, I, I call it the lazy approach. And this, this approach just claims ignorance of what God's expectations are. Well, you know the Bible, it's a big book. It says a lot of things in there. You know, and so uh, they're just going to go with the flow. Just ride the current. You know, I, I'm going to just go along for the ride. Water flows downhill. But that's not obedience to the law. The law says, love the Lord your God with all your strength, with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. Invest yourself in it. Pour yourself into loving God. And God tells us that the law is authoritative. And that means that we should take some time and invest ourselves in figuring out what it means. Now the answer to all these false ideas about obedience, these lies that end up in disobedience, is true obedience. It, the answer to, to the false ideas about obedience is true obedience. So what is true obedience? Jesus comes proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom of heaven. True obedience is believe in the gospel of the kingdom of heaven. Believe in Jesus Christ. And keep his words. Do what he says. Faith gives us the strength to be obedient, to obey the law. That's us not doing it on our own strength. 
It's us proclaiming our own inability to do it and our willingness and courage and bravery to step forward in faith and try and do it anyways. Trusting God to lift us up and carry us through. By faith we can be humble and confess our sins. And by faith we can receive holiness and the washing of our sins. And the Spirit of Christ by which we can be changed from within. Our hearts are changed. Because Jesus is making all things new and he starts with our hearts. The inside. And eventually that works its way out. And there's great reward for this kind of obedience. Because God's revelation is consistent, and Jesus' message upholds the law, there is greater and lesser rewards in the kingdom of heaven. So keeping the commandments is worth it. No matter the burden or trial that they may be in the meantime. So, obey the law. The next application is value the law. Value the law. Now this is implied in obedience to it. Now, if you're going to, 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 to do what it says, that implies that you value it. But it is necessary to state this nonetheless. Don't be turned away from the law by boredom or by burdens. Now this was a problem for the disciples who were under the Pharisaical administration in Jesus' time. In Matthew 23, Jesus is speaking about the, the Pharisees and what their expectations of the people are. He says, The scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. Therefore, whatever they tell you to observe, that observe and do, but do not do according to their works, for they say and do not do. For they bind heavy burdens. Hard to bear and to lay them on men's shoulders. But they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers. But all their works they do to be seen by men. They make their phylacteries broad and enlarge the borders of their garments. They love the best places at feasts, the best seats in the synagogues, greetings in the marketplaces, and to be called by men, Rabbi, Rabbi. But you do not be called Rabbi. And so forth. But they make heavy burdens. They make heavy burdens, and Jesus says that we're supposed to submit to those. So don't be turned away by the burden. Similarly, there's a, a tendency for us to be bored with the law. Um, it's old. It's hard for us to comprehend and understand. Um, it, it can seem like an incredible burden. All these things that we start reading through the Old Testament. Like God, God expects, well, I've got to do that, and I've got to do that, and I've got to do that. And it's so much. Don't let that stop you from trying to obey the law. Because if Jesus is making all things new, and he fulfilled the law and the prophets, <clears throat> then we can learn vast amounts of truth about our God and his intentions for us by studying the law, the scriptures, in the light of Jesus' revelations about them. So since Jesus fulfilled the law, we must wrestle with it to understand its application for us. Now, there's a, a historical 
division of the law into traditional, I mean, it's a, it's a historical division into moral, civil, and ceremonial law to try and make sense of the, the Old Testament law. And there's some value to that, but you don't see anything about that here. Jesus says simply, not one jot or one tittle will pass away. So that means as we go through the law and we encounter things like the Ten Commandments or laws about sacrifices or laws about governing the people, we have to understand what it means for Christ to have fulfilled those things and apply those then to how we live. But that's for a whole other sermon series. And then uh, we read what the New Testament writers do with the law to help us with this. Paul tells us that not muzzling the ox, treading out the grain, wasn't really about oxen and grain. He says that's about ministers and their pay. Hmm. Wow, we have a lot of work to do here. And it's exciting stuff, because that means that all the scripture is valuable for us. There's a lot of exciting work to be done here, so value the law. Enjoy it. Immerse yourself in it. Also, don't be turned away by caricatures of the law. In first century Judaism, the Jews thought that the reason the Messiah hadn't come yet was because they needed to perfect their methods. They said, the, the reason that we're stuck under these Romans is because we're not worshiping right yet. We're not doing good enough. And there are different uh, ideas about what way to do that was, but that was the idea in general. So they multiplied rules and laws. And they made the law an incredible burden. But Jesus comes and explains that, no, you need to stop trying to do it because you can't. You need me to do it for you. You need your hearts of stone replaced with hearts of flesh. And so these caricatures then provide a false picture of how the law works. So today, I mentioned the modern-day Pharisees. That's one end of the spectrum, where they, they say that we just need a, a, a checklist of do's and don'ts. Um, on the other end of the spectrum, um, they're, especially from like the liberal and progressive circles of the church, they, they, there's a claim that the law was culturally relevant. And so it's largely inapplicable today. Um, but both extremes, both extremes, both wooden application and sophisticated revulsion of the law, people that think that they're better than that, they miss the mark by refusing to see and understand what the law is and what it is all about. They don't understand how the law is pointing to Jesus Christ and God's grace in the gospel of salvation. Now finally, our text gives us warrant to value tradition. Old is the new new. And this means that we must be wary of the tyranny of the new. Our culture is always looking for the newest and the brightest and the next upgrade and the shiniest and the fastest and the coolest. We, 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 we always want to be hip. But that's a tyrannical world to live in. As soon as you've got the latest gadget, it's outdated. And if we let it, we find that we're living in a hamster wheel and ever running faster and getting nowhere fast. And 
since we live in the information age, this has moved past gizmos and gadgets into the realms of philosophy and culture building. So in government, or in psychology, or in education, and religion, progressive is in, and traditional or conservative is out. Progressive is in, traditional and conservative is out. Now some synonyms for progressive are open-minded, liberal, and cutting-edge. In other words, shock value is good. Feminism and egalitarianism are on a full-court press against biblical faithfulness. If, if it pushes the envelope, no matter how evil or how verifiably foolish it is, the enlightened ones will not only let it go, they will ram it down our throats. And so in order to propagate this worldview, this rebellion, this rejection of God and His law, whatever is old is boring and not useful. No matter, it's, and anybody who says otherwise is put in the stocks and ridiculed. They think that the law was essentially for a bunch of societal Neanderthals and only the backwards and the stupid would think that it was still relevant today. So they mock faithful Christianity. And so we find today, God's word is relegated to the ancient and stuffy. And the result is this, and I, I'm not sure about you, but I find myself constantly in favor of older ideas and outdated modes of thinking. And they are so countercultural that they're new. <laughs> they're so countercultural that we struggle with being able to communicate them in a way that doesn't shut down the audience in a matter of seconds. If you say what you honestly believe in our culture, you are shut down almost immediately. The biblical definitions of justice and righteousness are under constant attack. And the faithful are restricted to ever-diminishing areas of influence. And here's the key, if we let them. If we let them. If we refuse to value our traditions. If we refuse to value the law and God's revelation in it, this progression, this ever-diminishing area of influence, it will be inevitable. But if we will obey, and if we will bear witness, as Jesus calls us to bear witness of the gospel of the kingdom of heaven, We must be willing to be persecuted for righteousness' sake, for Jesus' sake. And then we will be salt, and then we will be light. There's a Latin phrase that we've inherited from the Reformation. The, the full phrase is, Reformata et semper reformanda secundum verbum dei. And it means reformed and always reforming, 
according to the Word of God. The Word of God is old. It's faithful. It's eternal. But as we are reformed to be the image of Christ, and as we continue to be reformed to be like Christ and become like the Word of God, we bring something new to the world. We establish the kingdom of heaven. And it means that we are renewed and given rebirth, and we are regenerated according to the Word of God. And as we are, we bring that with us wherever we go. Old, the eternally old, God, the God of the Scriptures, is the new new. God is doing a work in our midst, and it is wonderful to behold. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. to be nourished and refreshed, to be renewed and re-strengthened, to be encouraged and reborn. Here our God from eternity past, the same always and forever, unites us to himself in covenant and gives us new life. And this is not boring or lame. This is not even safe. As Lewis describes Aslan, he is not a tame lion. Our God is the source of all vitality and hope, of joy and strength, of holiness, of wisdom, and of power. And here he deigns to come down to us and show us his love. He gives us his son as a sacrifice to reconcile us to him and to show us how to live. Go and do likewise. Die to yourself that you might know resurrection life. Pour out yourself for others. Obey the law. Humble yourself and believe that Jesus died for your sins and receive the reward promised. Christ's body, broken for us, let us pray. Thank you for listening to these excerpts from the worship service of Christ Church of Livingston County. If you would like further information about anything in these messages, the Bible, about Christ Church of Livingston County, or wish to make any other related inquiry, please feel free to contact Pastor Dirk DeWinkle through our website, ChristKirkMI.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-T-K-I-R-K-M-I.com. Again, thank you and blessings.